Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has huge significance. One way to keep turning up is to do a regular movement practice. I talk about this a lot in the podcast, but I know that many of you still have difficulty getting it integrated into your daily routine. To try and make it easy for you, I put together a series of stretching movements in a single PDF document, one page only, along with video links, which you can download for free. If you'd like to get hold of your copy, please look for the very obvious link in the show notes. So since we started five years ago, I've chatted to a few guests who've been in the triathlon world a very long time. Right from the start, pretty much. Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Bob Babbitt, Sarah Springman and Steve True spring to mind. But none of them have been at as many seminal triathlon occasions as this week's guest. Canadian Barry Sheppey may be better known to you as the commentator of the World Triathlon Series TV coverage, but there is way more to him than just that. At different times, he's been president and national coach of Triathlon Canada, as well as a race announcer, and now an author. And in today's show, we catch up with him about his triathlon life and talk about some of the inspirational characters who feature in his new book, Chasing Greatness. So let's cut to the chase and get chatting with Barry Shepley. Welcome to the show, Mr. Barry Shepley. It's taken a while. It has, but uh, with the busy schedules that both of us have, trying to line up everything is not always easy. Well, unlike fine wines, you always get to them eventually, eh? Uh, fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. No, you're most welcome, Barry. And, and the reason I reached out to you, or was reminded to reach out to you, was I saw a post from you about your new book, which I'd love to pick up with you about later on, if we can. That would be fun if you have a few minutes at the end. Oh, I've made time for it, Barry. I've made time. But um, the last time we chatted, probably the last time we were both in Kona, probably the last time any of us were in Kona was uh, a few years ago. We were talking in at the airport as we were departing and uh, chatting about the race and Lionel and uh, some of the other athletes. And you were suffering with a bit of a sore throat. So we planned a podcast. We never got it together then, did we? And it's taken us three years. Well, I went back, ironically, I had bookings and went back last year. Um, and once it was canceled, we said, you know what, let's just go and see what Kona looks like with no people there. And it mm. was a very odd seven or eight days. I mean, you literally could walk into every restaurant and not wait. Um, you could mm -hmm. feel the locals, you know, kind of sadness. There were probably about a dozen people who actually put on their own Ironman that day. I could see wow. them out on on the highway biking past, you know, about 11 o'clock in the morning. So there was a little bit of life, but not nearly the insanity that will be here in another kind of five or six weeks when we all get back. I've, I've been in Kona about probably 10 days after race day. And it's like two different places, isn't it? Like you say, you can walk, you can walk down main street, um, past the Kona mall and everything at 9, 8, 9 PM. And it's a virtual ghost town. There's hardly yeah. anybody there. There's the, all the all the cops are sitting in that pool in there where the buses are because there's nothing to do. I think there's going to be a pent up demand for this year. You know, people who both with the two day event that yeah. occurred before. So I think that'll be interesting to see how they manage that. Um, 
And then because of a two day event, more people racing, therefore more people in town. And, you know, fortunately I had all my stuff booked 12 months ago, so mm. we're fine for, uh, for accommodations and stuff, but I think it'll probably be, uh, the biggest zoo we've seen in, in years. Yeah. I tried to enter the Hoala swim the other day thinking, oh, it's only the end of July. I'll have plenty of time. I was full up. So I'll wow. have to, um, I'll have to swim out from the pier and just go for a swim on the public, uh, in the, in the public pool. <laughs> that, that, you know what? I mean, I've signed for, up for that thing four days before. So again, you're just showing the demand that's there right now. For oh, sure. I've signed up on race morning. I mean, it, yeah. you had to queue and I think they delayed the start one year because they were all the signups, but yeah. You were the guy who made the race delayed. Okay. Now, no. now. <laughs> well, I was until I got in the water and they were still signing people that, well, I was in, so it wasn't just me. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so um, let's talk about how you got into triathlon because I, I, I had a quick look at your bio. You were Canadian national coach back in 1991. That must have been Canada must have been one of the first countries to, to actually have an official national coach, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think really, if you take a look, and the book talks a bit about this, but uh, there is this less McDonald factor that the entire world needs to know. And, you know, if you're if you're these new athletes in the last three to five years, maybe Les McDonald's name doesn't even resonate for you. And that was part of the reason that I wanted to have some space in the book for him, because, you know, as you know, and, and many of your viewers who have been around for a long time, Les was this incredible, feisty, crusty, brilliant, genius, tough guy to deal with, amazing guy to spend time with, you know, all of those things wrapped into one. And so here I was as a just past my 20s, I was the president of uh Triathlon Ontario, I'd started up the federation, which would be the equivalent of, you know, one of the U.S. states. And I get this phone call from Les McDonald saying, look, son, I, I hear that you're the guy in Ontario. We're trying to put this Triathlon Canada thing together. I need you to come where the, you know, where the Mecca is going to be for the next 25 years. And that's North Vancouver, my house. So <laughs> I went and lived at his house for two months and got the greatest history and, uh, you know, just education you can imagine. This is in the old era when the big uh, fax machine had, you know, that paper that just kept coming and coming mm -hmm. and coming, wax paper. We'd get up at six o'clock in the morning and there'd be 35 feet of paper on the end of his machine. And, you know, the guys from Australia had sent a note and the Japanese had sent a note and some of the people from the UK or France or Germany. I mean, these were the kind of in the US, these were like the six hubs, really, of the sport in the world. Mm. at that time. And so he, he was kind of starting to play this role as the international uh, kind of guidance. And then the 1989 world champs where he and Marisol and many of the great minds that we all know uh, started the ITU and he was made president. They made that great decision not to go with modern pentathlon for those who need to follow that part of the history. Modern pentathlon wanted to eat us and take us under their umbrella and we would have had to go by their rules and so less others fought very hard. And, um, and I just happened to be lucky that I was in his sphere. And so he pulled me along. Uh, I, I was coaching already. I was in grad school and, and doing uh, elite coaching. And so they gave me opportunities on the national team, but probably even more so uh, the commentary opportunities that kind of grew out of being in his sphere and Graham Fraser, the guy who started so many races in North America and, and Canada. So those two guys really probably had the biggest impact on what I did for the last 30 years. Yeah. I remember in those early days, Les was president of the ITU, wasn't he? And he was a much maligned figure. I mean, he, he, you think about the energy he had to drag all that together and bring together this nucleus of those six countries you mentioned. And yet he became a bit of a hate figure amongst a lot of people, didn't he? And, you know, I didn't know he didn't less care at all. About I, that, I think... though. He, he didn't care. I mean, no, he had a vision. Not. 
he had his vision. He was going to get us, drag us, pull us, push us into the Olympic Games. Hmm. And I don't think there's an athlete today who hasn't benefited, whether it's the Brownlees or Alex Yee or, you know, Javier Gomez, you go down around the hmm. world, Jorgensen. The Olympics opened up budgets in countries that never uh, yeah. today would still not have a budget hmm. for national programs and coaches and, and travel. And the moment that we got in, you know, 93, when they said triathlon and taekwondo into the Sydney Olympics, uh, my life, our lives, you know, changed massively. And, and ironically, some Canadian great athletes that, you know, people like Lori Bowden and Heather Fuhr and Peter Reed and mm. Lisa Bentley, they made decisions almost within weeks that I don't swim fast enough to be in this draft legal business. And I'm going to put all my eggs into the Hawaii Ironman and the Ironman, you know, a basket. And mm -hmm. they did and had brilliant careers instead of trying to chase an Olympic dream that really would not have been realistic for them. Well, and you mentioned another name there. I know I do know Graham Fraser. I met Graham. Um, Ironman Canada was my first Ironman back in 1995. And then I think yeah. I can't remember if 1995 was the year when Graham had the first year when Graham had rescued it because it went into administration, didn't it? The, the, the townspeople of Penticton funded it to keep the license, but they couldn't keep it going. And Graham Fraser took over. And then he, then he started at Blake Placid, which I also did in the first year. And then he, at some point he had about, uh, at least half a dozen of those North American, um, major North American Ironman races that we know now. Oh, he was the, the major player in the world. I mean, he had, you know, if you looked at, I think there was eight or nine, mm -hmm. pulled out at 2,500 people. So do the math, you know, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. And that was the era that it would, it would sell out the day after the race. Yeah. I remember queuing up the day after the race. <laughs> and so 20,000 people were lined up, you know, whatever, um, and he made a brilliant, you know, there was, it was the, the big growth really in North America and, and many people around the world kind of came to those mm. races, uh, prize money and, and so forth. So, you know, Graham and Sue gave me my opportunity to start my commentary stuff in their series. And that, that 92 worlds where, you know, Simon Lessing crossed the line, McKinley mm -hmm. Jones crossed the line in front of this beautiful hotel called Deerhurst on a spectacular fall morning. Uh, Spencer Smith won his world junior title there. And this like young punk named Cameron Brown got a silver medal. And here he is now in his fifties, you know, still racing around the world, all those fantastic Ironman New Zealand races that Cameron Brown has had. And I was literally for another reason looking this morning and there were people like Norman Stadler, mm -hmm. Hunter Kipper, um, all these kids who are in that junior race. Uh, well, probably Thomas Hellriegel might have raced in that, did he? As well? yeah, or was so, he? No, he might have actually, he's probably a bit older. He might've been racing in the senior race. I think he was, uh, but I, I could see, you know, and then the older guys like Burrell and, um, you know, t that, that bunch of elite athletes from around the world, but mm -hmm. big names, you know, Spencer and Simon kind of had their, they were in their heyday in that kind of era and to have had the luxury of announcing them live was really special. And, you know, for the listeners who have joined the triathlon scene in the last few years and, and think that triathlon really started with the Olympics back in, well, 2012 for a lot of people in London, because that was when it really sort of exploded in the UK. But back in 2000 in Sydney, which we can talk about in a minute, but, you know, the Brownleys were the ones who really just, you know, were the catalyst for a huge explosion in the UK. But we mustn't forget people like on the male side, Simon Lessing and Spencer Smith, who probably got seven or eight world titles between them. And of course, Sarah Springman, who was a great athlete in her own mind, but also politically was a huge driver and a bit of a, um, you know, had, had a few uh, 
had a few duels with Les, didn't she? At well, one she point. was a very tough, bright woman. I've spent, you know, 30 years with Sarah and, you know, watched her at first as a great athlete coming through, but, mm. you know, her real biggest impact would be all of the administrative brilliant things sitting on boards, both in the ETU and the mm. British program. And then of course the, on the ITU side of things. So, you know, she made sure as Les and others did and, and Marisol, that you know the equality you know i just literally announced uh some games in the last week and you know here are these 17 year old you know young women racing and i'm saying to them and their moms look you know when this sport came along had had the decision makers like you know marisol and sarah and less and others not said equality equal distance equal prize money equal time of the day equal television equal equal and 99 times out of 100 in the last 30 years, women have had absolute equality as they should. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see sports like cycling and others that still don't have equality for women or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's football or whatever. So I'm very proud to be involved in the sport that, you know, if I had a niece or a daughter or a granddaughter, they could have the same chance to make a living, to race on the same course with the same television as they should have. And it's something that our sport should be proud of. But those early pioneers, Lorreen Barnett and others who were involved, they were a big part of why, you know, equality happens. And I happened to be a part of a conversation with Mark Allen uh, not too long ago. And Mark tells the story in France in 89. Mm-hmm. It's the first ever world supposed to be equality. And then suddenly with a few days to go before it, uh, there's some kind of getting a little shaky of whether they're going to have women's prize money. And so Aaron Baker and those great athletes of that era weren't going to race. And the men, including Mark Allen, said they would not race either unless there was going to be equal prize money. Uh, less and others forced it to happen. The women got equal prize money. They all have always had. And, you know, Mark says, you know, it's 10,000 bucks that came out of my pocket because he would have won a bigger paycheck that day. Mm-hmm. Had there only been male, male paychecks, not females. But he said it was the best money I ever, you know, didn't make because mm-hmm. it gave sport equality from day one. So back in those early days, then when you, when you moved over to stay with Les, um, how much coaching were you doing as a national team coach and who, and who were the athletes you're working with? Was Simon Whitfield a junior then? He must, if he was the first uh, Olympic gold medalist in Sydney. So he must've started his tri career then at least. Yeah. I mean, it was an, an odd era, you know, and, and I, I still never think of a national coach as really a national coach. I think it's a dumb title that shouldn't exist because really everyone has been connected with their high school swim coach mm-hmm. and the guy that got them on the bike and whatever. So I had a piece of paper that said, I'm the dude who's going to fill out a, you know, a, a slot or two of, you know, when we get to a world champs or make sure that your bike mm-hmm. is popped up. Uh, but there were many athletes in that era that I had a chance to work with. Uh, uh, one athlete named Sue Schlatter, who went on to be second at the worlds at one point. Uh, but the, you know, the era that really took off for me was with Whitfield and I had started a program called Kids of Steel. I was mm-hmm. concerned that uh, there was just the sport, as it almost is still today, mostly adults, you know, 80, 90% adults. And I said, but we're 100% of adults. Like, we have nothing for youth. Every other sport I know, soccer, football, swimming, has a million kids and a few adults at the top of the pyramid. This was reversed. There was no kids at all. So I started a program called Kids of Steel, kind of stealing from the idea of Iron Man, Kids of Steel. And that very first summer, I brought this van up to a small town called Charbot Lake, which is outside of Kingston, Ontario, about two hours from Toronto. Simon was there with his neighbor who had a cottage on this lake, did his first triathlon with a crappy bike and a hockey helmet. 
and he was 12 at the time. And, you know, 13 years later, I've been with him, uh, you know, through most of that 13 years, he's obviously went to Australia and spent time and came back, but we never lost contact with each other. And so I was the Olympic coach in Sydney. And I mean, you just can't imagine how insane to have like dreamed about hearing an anthem to mm-hmm. dream about being at the Olympics. And when you started this journey, triathlon wasn't even, you know, in the Olympics. So it was so far away of dream in the eighties and early nineties. And then suddenly it is a reality. And this kid who's been with you since he was 12 crosses the line, you know, ahead of Stefan Vukovic and, and Jan Rahula. And there he is like, it's your anthem and you're 20 feet away and on those fantastic steps of the opera house, watching, you know, a flag be raised the way you saw all these other sports when you're watching on television mm. athletics and so forth. So you know, our sport was kind of like almost in awe, like we, here we are, we're in the big dance. And, you know, the young guys eventually like the Brownleys and the E's, you know, and the Helen Jenkins and all those athletes uh, who got those chances, got them because of the people that paid the price in the eighties, created the mm-hmm. Federation, the start of that circuit in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And then less is just endless, relentless belief that this sport does deserve to be in the Olympics. And even the distances, you know, that we're at at the Olympics were designed for television. You know, when they when they met with the IOC, Antonio Samaran said, look, that Ironman thing, it's awesome. But we're never caring about sitting for nine hours to wait till no. somebody crosses the line for a gold medal. So it needs to be television friendly. So hence the multiple loops, hence the two hour kind of event. You know, 1500 meters is a swim in the pool, 10Ks on the track, the 40K, you know, you do all those things and you really understand the derivation of it. It went back to being ready for the Olympics. So everything they did for about seven or eight years was to get into the party. And then everything since then has been to stay in the party, you know, and continue to grow the mixed team, which has been fantastic and so forth. I remember the it split a lot of people, didn't it? Uh, when when they decided that the ITU series was going to be draft legal and, uh, you know, it's all about the cyclists now. They're not bothered about us pure triathletes. It's cheating, you know, and it, there were definitely some people who were more suited to racing the time trial format and, and others who um, were more suited to riding that peloton style. But even then, um, it still went through various innovations, didn't it, in terms of the athletes who were doing well. I think Craig Walton and those guys in those early years could swim and sure. bike away Olivia from the group yeah. and, and hang on at the front. And then it changed and you 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 got people coming through who were, you know, like Simon, who were fantastic runners. And as long as you could come out of the water in touch and get into the lead group, you could run away from it. And then once the Brownlee started coming along, you started to get more balanced athletes who were just good at everything. It changed many times for sure. And you think back to the Aussies and the Americans when you had people like Loretta Harrop and Nikki Hackett and Sheila Taramina and Barb Lindquist, they were that from the gun, go. See what kind of lead those four women could get off the bike. Sometimes uh, Laura Bennett would be in that bunch, but you know, four or five women would try to have a 75 second lead and then they would chase, you know, everyone would be chasing them to the finishing line. Uh, but certainly if you talk to Simon, he, he felt there were evolutions, you know, there was these great athletes before him, Spencer and Simon and, uh, Lessing and so forth. And then, you know, his era of the great athletes, Hunter Kemper, and you think of the great guys that were in that era, but then, you know, Javier Gomez was that next kind of 1.0, you know, 1.5, whatever version. And then the Brownleys were 2.0, you know, they, they had no holes. They were spectacular from the gun. They were relentless on the bike. I mean, they were such a joy to announce uh, because 
I knew like people would say, why the hell would Allie Brownlee be pushing so hard on the bike when he's the best runner? He could sit in there and let it go, you know, an hour and five minutes for the bike. Who cares? I'm going to run a 29, 10 and, and beat you all. So he was so inspiring to watch the way he would try to rip everyone's legs off on the bike, on the front, uh, and then eventually have the fastest run of the day. I mean, it, it was such a joy to watch that era of athletes uh, come through. And, you know, there's no question that I talked to Ali about this out in Edmonton at the PTO race a few weeks ago. And, you know, he said he hopes that if he leaves an impact on the British program, it's how important the bike was mm -hmm. and that people like Alex Yee and others, you know, like become real awesome bikers and not just kind of wait to the run. And, and, and I think he's had that impact, you know, and it's, it's wonderful to watch. Um, it's perfect for Olympic distance. It hasn't always paid off for him at the longer stuff because he, he races the longer stuff. Like he raced the two hour mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. and sometimes the intensity, you know, got to his calves or, or whatever the case may be, but as an announcer, it's awesome. And even watching him race in Edmonton. Awesome. You know, he, he goes for a win every single race. He doesn't go there for a second. No, that's right. So a shit or bust, if you like, um, and yeah. that's the, that, but that's the Yorkshire way. And, uh, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm Brown. And that was, sure. that was what they always talked about. And I think there's a phrase, Malcolm says, you only ever win by, you know, half a step in front of you. Um, you know, your greatest opponent and, you know, some of those battles he had with Javier where they were just one trying to break the other one and they're just continually going at it until somebody cracked. But even when they cracked, there wasn't a great deal of time. You, If you were commentating, Barry, you probably just had a chance to get your breath before Javier came across the line. Yeah, no, they were there. And, you know, Johnny, obviously, uh, mm. you know, if those two other guys aren't in that era. Johnny Brownlee is the greatest triathlete that ever lived. <laughs> yes. You know, seriously. Uh, I mean, just how awesome he was. Um, well, he had four know, years, Barry. I don't, I don't. If you remember this, right? He had a four-year spell when he never finished outside the top three. Now you think yeah. about that, and that included French Grand Prix races, which are super sprints. Where if you can't, if if you can't get your helmet buckle done up quickly, you've missed the Over. bike pack and you're off. If you have a flat, so you think about all the bad luck he's had since. In that era, he had nobody falling off in front of him. He had nobody taking him off. He had no slippages on the corner. He had no mishaps whatsoever. The four years in the top three—that's just. That's just phenomenal. Yeah, it, it is. I also can't overemphasize how important I personally believe both those boys were to each other. Yes, I agree. Um, jo Johnny was the absolutely greatest training partner a human could ever have. You know, when the second best triathlete in the world gets up, you know, in, in the next room over and you go do your swim and your bike and run dry land. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was important as hell for Ali and for Johnny you know, he really just had to just follow the program. Just what does Ali want to do today, you know, in general? Uh, and he was never the same in my estimation. When Ali moved on to long or was injured, Johnny never raced the same, either with confidence or preparation. I don't know the, the nuance, but, you know, if you take a look at races that Ali was in versus races that Ali wasn't in, it's two different animals. And uh, and so for me, I, I loved the two of them when they were both healthy. He did have a he did have one spell when Alistair wasn't racing. I can't remember whether he was injured or or whether he'd moved on, but it was he did San Diego. And there was there was another race where he absolutely dominated um, that there was that one race where they were all starting on the beach and half the people ran down the beach and jumped in yeah. a bit later. And I think Johnny that was San Diego, Chris yeah. Kimmel running, running down the side. Yeah, but, but he, he dominated those first two races season. But Johnny's very much a confidence athlete. And um, you know, I think having Alistair there gave him the confidence, even if you beat him, um, if his confidence was off and Alistair wasn't there, I think that that probably uh, affected him more. 
Um, but well, you know, if, if you look in the world, there would have been a little time when the Americans were the factor uh, early, uh, particularly longer stuff. But, you know, the USTS, you know, series, et cetera, the Mike mm. Pigs and all those guys. And then really it started with Lessing and, and, uh, and Spencer and then the Aussies on the other side of the world. Uh, but since that era, I mean, really, you only have to look at France and Britain, you know, and a bit of Germany. But, you know, that's where the world has moved to. Uh, well, I think and, Norway might be. Uh, I think Norway might have a bit of an argument there now, Barry. Well, it's the new era, right? It's it's the new era. Yeah. And so yeah. there's no question Norway now is is punching above their weight. Mm. But if you look at, you know, I, I want to see more than just the three boys coming through mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, England, you know, has continued to create all of these athletes, one after the other, after the other. So there's a system, there's coaches, there's mm. universities. France is doing the same. I was in Montreal and looking at the boy that won the under uh, the junior world champs looked like he was a 25 year old pro, how well he raced. And, you know, and he's probably 17th in the country in ranking because there's all <laughs> the under 23s and then all the elite. So you really see the the rich, if you will, and I don't mean financially rich, but just those who are doing really good things, continuing to build on that, and the rest of the world needing to catch up. Mm. Let's just go back to the Olympics. Simon Lessing was, well, at least in the British press's mind, he was the overwhelming favourite there. He'd certainly been dominant in the world, up until, uh, the triathlon world up until that point. Um, was Simon Whitfield a fancied athlete then? Uh, Not no? at all. Not at all. In fact, Simon Whitfield had never won a major race till the day of the Sydney Olympic Games. Mm. So we had an athlete, however, named Carol Montgomery, mm -hmm. uh, who had been a past world champion, who who had made history at those Olympic Games in Sydney. Imagine this is still, to my knowledge, has never been done before or since. She had she was on two Olympic teams at the same game. So she was on the 10,000 meter track team, having mm -hmm. run 311, which is pretty damn fast, even by today's standards. Mm. Uh, for, for triathletes, 32-11, and she was on the triathlon team. Um, and if you really go back, should have been the world champion going into the Olympics. That was the Perth world champs where they sent the women one lap early to the finishing line. Mm -hmm. And she was only a few seconds behind Nikki Hackett with two and a half kilometers that should have still been running. So, uh, so Carol went in as our real big name. Um, and Lessing certainly and Hamish Carter and, you know, maybe Olivia Marceau, there was a couple of other people that were there. Conrad Stoltz was maybe a, a longer shot, but a getaway swim biker kind of guy. And uh, and Whitfield, literally, I remember him going to Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, at the World Cup race that was one of the hardest on the circuit. And I was very nervous of him going to that race because it, it had owned him over the years. He was 35th and 39th and 43rd, tough course. And I'm like, boy, you go there and get your lunch handed to you that close. You, you know, it just may be a confidence. Mm -hmm. whatever. And he came second to Craig Walton in that race, mm -hmm. very close. And so that was an indication, you know, to Lance and everybody who was involved that he was in pretty good shape. And he had Greg Bennett as his training partner every day. And Bennett was getting him fitter and fitter and building his confidence. And, and so he went in with a lot of personal confidence, but no media confidence. In fact, he was such an, a non-factor that the Canadian media who showed up in hordes on the first morning for Carol Montgomery did not return on the second day. And wow. after, the, after the kid won the golds, I'm getting phone calls. Can you hold them there? We're on our way from beach <laughs> volleyball or, you know, it wasn't beach volleyball then it would have been tennis or something else, but we're on our way over. 
because uh, there's a gold medal in Canada did not get, they only had three gold medals at those Olympics. And so Simon's was a very special one, the way he won it on the course, you know, epic form. So mm. it was Lessing for sure. And Carter for sure, that big thoughts were there for those guys. And um, they, they, I, it's funny. I, I talked about this in the book. I remember looking over at Simon Lessing and at Hamish Carter in the 30 minutes, 40 minutes before the race started and said, these guys do not look like they want to be here. They do not look happy. They do not look energized. And literally Simon's got water bottles squirting guys, Simon Whitfield. You know, he, he was always a playful kid and he's squirting people. He's in a good mood. He was lively. And it was like a fun summer camp. Um, and he had this phenomenal race of joy. And the two big names who had all the pressure um, did not come through. And, and, you know, I'm not sure if it was just uh, there was so much pressure because the British program was so strong and yet had never you know, won the big thing uh, that they were looking for. And so I don't know what that was, but, you know, Lessing certainly was disappointed, I'm sure, because he was, I mean, five world titles in that era. Mm. Mm. Um, and Hamish Carter was such an, a, a rock star, and then he eventually got his gold medal four years later. Yes. Let's, let's talk about your announcing then, Barry. So um, you've done a lot. Uh, some of the listeners might recognize you from the streamed um, WTS stuff. Um, I've certainly recognized that voice and we've had an interesting conversation about your conversations with Alistair and Johnny and being able to understand Yorkshire colloquialisms. Um, <laughs> but how, how did you get into the commentary? Well, uh, again, go, part of it goes back to the Les McDonald component. So um, in the old days for your, your viewers, um, IT would send a TV crew to the race, capture all the footage. They would you know, get the stuff on the motorcycles, the pre-interviews, the post-interviews and all of that stuff fly back to Vancouver where a production crew would work all night, put the whole thing into a 55 minute show. I would fly from Toronto out to Vancouver and with a, a person named Christine uh, German, we would, we would voice the show together. And this was that era. If you look at some of the old stuff in you know the nineties uh, and early two thousands, that's how those shows were, were being produced. Um, and then eventually the IT went to a much higher level of production you know, quality with some of the partners that they went to. Uh, but in, in the next phase, I was now live, but they only had a budget for one. So I talk about this in the book in a few places, like, you know, you have to do two shows back to back live, not another human being with you um, in a little crappy, you know, stand someplace. There was some little box that they would make and you'd be looking down from the box at the at the at the elite race. So that was a tough era um, because it's always much easier to do it with another person. You have a chance to get a drink or heaven forbid, you know, after three and a half hours, you have to have a pee or something, mm. you know, you've got a, another person that you can share that experience with. So that, that middle ground was probably not my favorite time because it was live. It was great doing, but it was tough without another person. Uh, and then, you know, Trevor Harris came involved with, uh, with the ITU stuff. And that was a, a really fun era because there was way more productive value in the show and slow motion, this and pre-interviews that. And, the quality of the show was higher with, you know, motor, better motorcycle cameras and all that kind of stuff. So that continued. And domestically, the CBC uh, in Canada was so in love with Simon that they probably covered 40 races in six years. So okay. I did a whole bunch of other live shows for mm -hmm. them, plus all of the Olympics. So I, I was in Sydney as a coach and then every Olympic since from Athens on, I've done the live uh, Olympic coverage for, for Canada and then some other countries have taken it as well. So, you know, there literally hasn't been a race, whether it's been an IT Worlds, you know, the Brownlees and Cozumel, you know, carrying each other across the line, the insanity, 
you know, of that. <laughs> you can just think through, you know, uh, Helen Jenkins winning uh, her and, and uh, Sarah Haskins in their great race, you know, in Vancouver and the absolutely brutal cold mm. ocean and then rainy day. And so I, I, I've never missed the worlds. I went to Montreal just, you know, a month or two ago, even though I'm not doing the commentary for them any longer. I'm a, I'm a fan. So I went and sat and watched and cheered and, you know, watch Hayden wild come around the corner with his chain hanging off the back and still catch up to the pack. And then him and Alex, you have their brilliance, you know, sprint run with you taking the victory. So, um, I, even if I have to buy my own ticket, I, I don't miss worlds. I, I love watching these guys race. Have you, have you done any of the Ironman stuff then? I know you said you were, were good friends with Graham Fraser. Did you get in on that act or because yep. yeah, no, Iron Ironman seems like it's all tied up now. They have their own, they have their own group of commentators now, don't yes. they? So in the in the last six seven years, there's certainly been a, a group of really hardworking people that have done all of their coverage, you know, from Greg and and uh, all of that team. And uh, but in the earlier days, I would have done Ironman stuff. I, I announced in Hawaii. I'm trying to remember the year I was there, standing up on what was called at that time the hot corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was standing up on the roof of the hot corner for like 11 hours doing commentary. And at one point, you know, after 11 hours and 19 bottles of Gatorade, one must pee. So I, I can remember peeing off the back of the roof with a, my mic on, still trying to bring age groupers down that little section of the road to their finishing line on a leafy drive. Uh, so, yeah, Ironman has is, is been fun. I've done, a, you know, some domestic ones out in Penticton, uh, Ironman Canada. I helped out there a few times with uh, Steve King, who's the mm-hmm. legend of that particular race. Um, but more of the, it just became the ITU and the shorter stuff was every other weekend. So it was difficult to make a commitment to longer distance races that were sometimes happening on the same weekend. So I, you know, I've spoken to a few commentators, I had Mike Riley on the show. We talked about a couple, a couple of years back, we talked about his book. Um, what is it that makes a good commentator, Barry? Because if you talk, if you talk to triathletes, they'll say, Oh, I don't like that guy. Well, I don't like this guy. There's always a bit of criticism of some of the triathletes or some of the commentators and the triathletes that are giving summaries on some of the British broadcasts on some of the Ironman Facebook stuff, you know, but then they'll also say, Oh yeah, I love Paul K. For instance, people love to be called across the finish line by Paul K. People always talk about Steve King. I've talked to a lot of people who've been yeah, the legend, IT, legend, talked, yeah. talked about you, obviously Mike Riley. Um, what, what is it that, that makes a great commentator? Well, you know what? I mean, I think, first of all, you're never going to please everybody. So I think that you have to, when you put yourself out in public, you you better accept that there's going to be somebody who thinks you're absolute bowl of crap and don't read too many of the sites because you're going to go home depressed after, after a race. But um, for me, it's about three things. The first thing is preparation. Um, you know, you, like I spent, and I talk about this in the book, my favorite time were the three mornings before the race on the circuit. I would sit in the cafeteria, usually the hotel, you know, um, breakfast nook for six in the morning till 10. And I would sit with as many athletes and the coaches and high performance directors. And they realized over time that I had no interest in trying to embarrass them or get dirt or, you know, make it a, some kind of a negative experience. I mean, I wanted to know who was coming back from an injury or who just finished up their PhD or who there's this new kid you got to look out for. I mean, it was Ali telling me, you better watch out for my brother. He's going to be awesome. You know, about two years before Johnny showed up on the circuit, I think we were having breakfast in Madrid one day and, and Ali saying, this kid's going to be, you know, awesome. And then I watched, you know, him have his silver medal finish at the Gold Coast with uh, Ivan or Mario Mola running through him on a hot, hot day. So, you know, he was bright. He was a, a spectacular athlete that would have a great career. 
So I think preparation, and I always use as many hours as I could with the athletes themselves, their coaches or physios. And the British team were fantastic. They would give me insight, for example, to say, look, so-and-so's, you know, still got a sore hamstring. Don't expect some big things out on the run. So you're not building this kid up on the bike that they're going to run away from everybody when the reality is they're going to run a 34 minute today, not a 2950. Mm -hmm. So I always appreciated that because that Intel helped me do a better job of saying, ah, yeah, he's done a great job on the bike. I think, you know, his day might be kind of coming to an end of where you're going to see him at the front. So preparation was part of it. I think that people could really, unless you're like a total, total nerd and you want to know exactly what gear ratio and what wattage and what whatever, that you that the stories are the things that make uh, a telecast much more interesting. And the reality is this is not the 100 meters that's done in 9.78 seconds. You know, this is two or three or, you know, depending on Ironman, 10 hours long. So there is an opportunity to tell these great stories about maybe the charity that the athlete's working with or some hurdles, you know, maybe come back from an eating disorder or some, mm -hmm. some issues that they've had with their family, loss of their father. You know, I remember when Jody Stimson's pa father passed, you know, how important part he had been on her life and her career and, mm -hmm. and how, you know, it could go either way. You could either be racing phenomenally well off of just honoring them or just sad and, and down. So I always took time to kind of tell the stories about the athletes. And I think that they generally appreciated that. Certainly the viewers, the feedback that I would get, that that would be there. Um, and then I think every every announcer has their own nuance. I mean, I, I'm a passion, like a Spanish soccer you know, announcer where I get excited. I, I hope that the people at home are feeling my excitement and that as they can see in, you know, I can still remember that, that long sprint with Johnny and Javier in London and Ali's on the other side of the road he, <laughs> injured, hollering at him and uh, the rain is coming down. The crowd is six deep, you know, like, like I I've looked probably a dozen times at that uh, finishing 300, 400 meters. And I don't even remember announcing it. Like, like it wasn't like there's a script or something that had written. Mm. It was just, you're in the flow of these two amazing athletes, you know, or Lisa Norton and, and Nicholas Spirik at the London Olympics it's just such an honor and, and it's as close as people like myself are ever going to be to being great, you know, mm -hmm. ever you're, you're there an inch away from these guys wondering what's going on in their head. Did someone go too early? And, and so for me, I think, uh, you know, in general, triathlon's a boring thing. I mean, it's like, wow, some people are sweating, who cares? So stories about intensity does, uh, that guy's got to make a break now, or he's never going to have a chance. And then when he does make the break, you go, wow. Okay. Can he stay out there? Um, those are all exciting parts that can take a person who's modestly interested in the sport and get to become more of a fan. So that was, was that two or three then you said preparation? Did you say being a nerd then knowing all the technical well, stuff? No, the nerds, the nerds, the, I don't really try to be a nerd. I, I try to stay away from the gear ratios because you know, who, who, who really cares unless you're like the nth high performance coach wanting to know what Brownlee's pushing or what gear ratio, you know, Christian Blumenfeld now is doing up a hill or Lionel Sanders is doing for, four hours at an Ironman. But, you know, I think we, we just have a really small part. And if we do our job, we just make that day a little more interesting. The athletes are the stars as they should be. The really difficult task is those people trying to bring those pictures to you. You know, I have such utmost respect for the cameramen mm -hmm. and the producers and the directors because no one ever sees them, but when they screw up and there's a blank screen, everyone knows somebody didn't do something right. And it's tough to have a camera on your shoulder for two or three hours going 70 kilometers an hour around a corner. Um, so when it works and you see this fantastic story and this amazing pictures of sweat and in, in, in intensity of the athletes, 
you know we've all done our job for a couple of hours. I, I do some commentary on some events called the Outlaw in the UK, but it's mostly live at the venue at the finish line, getting the athletes coming out of the water. And I always, I always think, well, you've, there's times when you say it's quiet when you've got to have a bit of a, a bit of banter with the crowd as well, haven't you? Because you've got to keep the crowd entertained while there's nothing going on while you're waiting for the finishes. But also, I always think, you know, it's about trying to make everybody feel special. It's about trying to, I've always tried to call every single person's name across the line. And, and I remember going, you'll have done these events as well, Barry. Nowadays, we've got iPads and a spot on mat and the name comes up. But in the early days, you'd have 20 sheets of paper and it'd be raining and you're trying to go through getting somebody's name. And then all oh, the person behind them's four pages further forward and you're going crossing them off. And even if it didn't have the names on the, on the, number on their, their t-shirt i'd be like here comes 101 rocking that yellow shirt what a great finish here and number 202's fight so at yeah, least somebody part of our sport though you think yeah. right that's what yeah. made, i think yeah. the age grouper want to come back you know that's what made mike riley famous you know each person got their name as they crossed the finishing line at one mm. of uh one of the i i dot uh events and I, I think that those of us you know you're in the same boat as i am like there is a different um a different uh, responsibility and kind of skills when you're live at a stadium mm. where you're keeping everyone flowing versus, uh, you know, you're also maybe now doing television, which is a slightly different set of skills mm. and maybe just pure commentating, you know, where it's almost like a radio thing. So each one of them have slightly different, but I think at the end of the day, it's still about entertaining, making people feel good about what they're doing. Mm. And we got to realize there's a thousand other places where our viewers could be. So yeah. if you don't make it interesting enough. They're, they're going to just, you know, tune on to TikTok or something else in 20 seconds. So you've got a short window to make it interesting. Well, I do, I do think perhaps that's, that's a crit. I don't know what it's like in Canada or the U S but certainly the, the criticism perhaps of some of the BBC commentators is that they're not, you, you know, you can hear them one, one time they're doing the hockey and then they're doing the ice skating and then they're doing the triathlon. It's like, yeah, so it's just a, it's just a, a job for today, you know, go and do a bit of research. So, you know, what you're talking about marginally and then move on to the next sport. There's, there's not really a passion. Whereas when you're listening to yourself or, or some of the other commentators, you detect that love and passion for the sport, which, which actually does come across to the listener and to the viewer. Well, it's, it's great to hear. I mean, certainly it's what it's felt like and it's not, pretend you know it's it's like i can feel my pulse rising as that heartbeat you know you hear from the itu stuff whatever as that heartbeat is ticking on the and they're on the pontoon and you're waiting for that last 25 seconds mm -hmm. i'm like here we go particularly if you've got the people on the pontoon that you were hoping to see you know whether it's blumenfeld going against hayden going against you know alley going against you name it um, you know, you go, wow, here we go. We've got the the women and here's Flora Duffy and she's hungry and she's going after the British women today, that kind of thing. So it, it's, I'm excited when they get the right people in the right field. And I hope the spectators and the viewers feel the same way. So let's talk about your book, Chasing Greatness. Just before we do that, I can remember being in Kona when we were selling compu trainers and you came along and you spoke to Chuck who you knew well he was the owner of the company and Chuck was you know even in his late 70s and early 80s would be standing there in that heat and the sun all day long talking again with great passion about why the compu trainer was so great and I remember you came along and Phil um I don't know if you remember Phil the, the Australian yeah. guy was there and he was doing some work with Craig Alexander and Chris McCormack and you said gee you guys need to help me out with this guy I've got he's going to be amazing 
And we're like, Chuck's going, huh? Who is he then? And he has he got what results he got? He's called Lionel Sanders. And we're like, okay, I've never heard of him. No, honestly, trust me on this. He's going to be great. And then Chuck said, well, gee, Barry's never been wrong in the past. Maybe we should give him a chance. And I'm like, well, yeah, and he did. Well, they were, you know, I mean, uh, Peter Reed was a a huge fan of the of the equipment. Peter, Laurie, yeah, Yeah. um, uh, Lisa. Yeah, no, for yeah, sure. That, that whole Canadian, I'm yeah. sure Heather Fuhr as well, that whole Canadian mm-hmm. uh, you know, gang of, of the 90s and 2000s, that whole group really loved, you know, the CompuTrainer. It was the uh, the technology of the day. There's no question about it. And then this young kid, Lionel Sanders, comes along. We're from the exact same town, 2,000 people. 20 years after I went through the school, he came through. And so uh, I felt an obligation to help a young guy from the same part of the world that I'd come from. He had no equipment. He was trying to better himself. And anybody who's followed Lionel's career knows of, you know, some of the tough things he went through with with drugs and depression kind of at the end of his high school, the start of his college career. So, you know, we were so lucky that people like uh, CompuTrainer came through with equipment. People, you know, like Louis Garneau came through initially with with the bike, he didn't have any equipment. So between equipment I had donated and some lovely people who literally just threw money in a pot so that I could get this kid to races and get him around the country and get him to, uh, you know, to some of the bigger opportunities. I knew he was there, but you and I have seen great athletes who through either finances, life things, it just, the hurdle becomes too large and they just go, you know what, I'm just going to go off and do this other job at a factory or, or whatever. And, and that was my biggest fear that this world-class talent wouldn't spend the next couple of years to become who Lionel Sanders, you know, is today. What, what was it that you saw then? Cause I remember people saying to me, uh, they, they talk about Olympic champions to say, you could always tell he was Olympic champion. I'm like, no, no, you can't. You can tell they've got some of the things that might make an Olympic champion, but there's stuff you don't know. Like, when Alistair first came to join the Talent ID program, you could tell he'd got tenacity. You could tell he pushed himself until he basically blacked out or, you know, he couldn't go on any further. And you could tell that he had that approach that you mentioned earlier where he would just go from the gun and it was like, you know, win or, or disaster, but no, nothing in between. No, no sort of like, well, podium will do. So what was it that you saw in Lionel when you first saw him that made you think, actually, if we give this guy some support, he could be, you know, right at the top. Well, you know, I think, first of all, just think about how big a hurdle it is to come overcome addiction and overcome, you know, depression and some of the things that he had to be dealing with. So the fact that he was even going to make the chance to move up with me uh, in the kind of the Toronto area, I went to school at McMaster, um, said to me that he wants to better himself. So athletically, uh, you could tell he was a horse, like he was just a monster. I brought him to this famous mountain that we train on in, in Tucson, Arizona called Mount Lemon. Mm-hmm. It's six miles. It's iconic. It's it's it just doesn't end. It starts down in the desert with cactus and ends at a ski hill at the top. It's the most southern ski hill in America. Um, so I brought him there on a borrowed bike. He took five minutes off the fastest time I'd ever seen in the history on the mountain. And I'm like, he doesn't have a water bottle. He doesn't know how far this is. <laughs> just is relentless. So you can't buy that. You can't will it. You can't. You know, it's there. It's it's God given. And then the other parts of the formula, you know, are, do you really care enough to want to do this? I mean, you could apply that same tenacity to being in med school or someplace else. Mm. So I could see that he had this passion for running. Um, and it's funny because people don't think of him as a runner. Uh, like I, I got to know him as a high school runner that I convinced, you know, to move into triathlon. He's probably now better known as a cyclist, 
But but if you ask him what he is, where his heart is, what he loves the most, it's running. Uh, and so, you know, you saw a little of that in St. George, where he finally kind of biked intelligently enough that he could show that he was a runner. Mm. Uh, and that was great to see in a couple of those sprint finishes that he had with Rudy Van Berg and earlier this year and, and so forth. So in Lionel's case, um, I, I believed that Ironman now, having said that it's changing in the last five or six years with the Jan Ferdinos and others, but over many years, it, in my mind, wasn't the most talented athlete that won that race. It was the hardest working, most dedicated, mm-hmm. executed the best plan on the day. Um, it's now, you know, with the Blumenfelts and and those kids moving in and, you know, if Ali ever nails his perfect day, you know, they, they go from the gun and Ferdino certainly has been brilliant in, in his, you know, he's brought a higher level of quality of, of athletes. So I never thought of, of uh, Lionel as the best at anything other than just being tenacious. And boy, does that not pay a lot of dividends, you know, at a 70.3, at a PTO 100, you know, at something like the Ironman. So it's been a great honor to kind of be there from the very beginning to help him with equipment, to help him overcome hurdles. I learned very early on that nobody coaches, you know, uh, Lionel, maybe that's changing now, you know, with this Norwegian experiment. Um, but you know, he, he has to believe it himself and usually has to make the mistake twice. And then he goes, <laughs> yeah, that was a bad mistake. Let's do something differently. So whether it's wearing a camel back at the Hawaii Ironman one year and 13 pounds of water on his back, you, you know, you spend $10,000 to make your bike 50 grams lighter. And then you put 13 pounds of water on a camel back and ride around for the day. So he's certainly never done anything in a traditional way. He's made it interesting as hell for spectators. He's as honest as hell. He's, you know, I mean, he's everything you could ask for for the sport. I mean, he's great. He, he, and he finds that special place when he needs to on big races. Mm-hmm. And I remember being out one year with Hawaii. He was having a terrible day and said, "Dude, just let me get the car." And he's nope. And I said, "Okay, see you in two and a half more hours when you finish this freaking marathon because that's what it's going to take to walk this thing." And he walked jogged, you know, in in some horrifically slow time, but he he he's never quit once. So does. Does Lionel make it into the book, Chasing Greatness? Oh, yeah, I mean, I he's, Lionel's still chasing greatness, isn't he? So he should be a prime candidate. Sure. Yeah, no, he's in the book. Uh, inspired to watch him, to see him, to watch his hard work, his his desire to be great, the mistakes that he's made. You know, and I'm, I've talked in the book of a couple, you know, of mistakes that I made with him and wished I could go back. And, you know, part of life is you don't have every answer when you start down a pathway. If you're being sincere, you try to use your best discretion and, and history and knowledge. But sometimes you look back and go, boy, that was a mistake. So I think great coaches and great anything, businessmen, you know, they reflect upon the end of a season and say, could have done that better, wish we'd done this differently, and then let's refine it uh, in there. But th- there's a great, there's a great section, you know, about Lionel and you know, the people that made a difference in his life. And uh now. You know, now when I turn on and he's got 175,000 YouTube people tune in in 17 seconds after he puts up a video, it's like, that's the kid that I literally brought back to a small town of 2000. And Mm -hmm. we did a talk together to raise the money to buy his first bike before he got a Louis Garneau bike. It was the first bike that he got. And, you know, to help him sign the deal with Canyon or whoever, you know, over the years, Skechers and, and uh, Freshie and all these things. I mean, you know, he now has a house he could buy. He, he's got a baby on the way. And so, you know, in a very, very small way, it's great for the people that were in our club that have helped fund him to know that, you know, we set a life on the right direction and he'll now help and inspire 
you know, 50 times the people we could have ever inspired. He needs to be careful with having that many YouTube followers because it seems like when, when you've got that bigger following, you end up in cage fights with people to sort out who's... <laughs> Well, well, he's got the uh, he's got the mixed arts uh, training. Yeah, buddy there. I'm sure he has. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. like to step anywhere with Lionel. Maybe a bar. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so Simon Whitfield, I presume, is in there as well. Yeah, I mean Simon really was uh, probably the biggest impact after Les McDonald. You know, in in my life, I mean, so many of the things that happened to my wife and I wouldn't have happened without Simon Whitfield. I mean, the greatness that he was, uh, the doing it under the biggest pressure day at the Olympics in debut at the Sydney games where he went to high school in grades 11 and 12, you know, everything about it is literally a storybook. And at some point someone should do a movie about Simon, because I mean, literally, you know, he privately tells me the story of him being uh, the day that Sydney got elected. He was at Knox grammar school in Sydney. And, and now the Olympics are coming with triathlon to this city. And he mm -hmm. went all by himself down to the opera house he's standing in front of the opera house and he's visualizing himself in seven years wow. racing there and here he is seven years later not just racing there standing on top of the podium and, and i tell a little bit of the stories in the book i mean you can imagine you play basketball you play soccer netball whatever it's going on for two or three weeks you know 17 days of the of the tournament of the olympics you do triathlon on the second morning at 10 a.m or i guess 11 30 a.m we are time to partay for the next 15 days and I mean, he was getting asked by to parties you cannot imagine. He was getting asked to come and sit on the bench of the basketball gold medal game and you name it, you name it. So it was it was crazy to see a kid go from we didn't have sponsors and, you know, nobody knew his name to happening in front of your eyeballs in mm. 17 days. And it never changed. And what he did more than almost anyone I've ever seen is he redirect he redirected that light on a whole bunch of people on Triathlon Canada's Federation, got sponsors they never had. My Kids of Steel program sold out like it had never sold out. I had opportunities to do commentating that happens just because of Simon's generosity. So, you know, his impact on my life has been amazing. And he was just here a month ago. We put on, I still put on a Kids of Steel race every year. And he came and handed out medals for six hours to these nine-year-old kids who didn't know who the hell he was. But their parents were wet in their pants to get a picture with the guy <laughs> they saw on television that September in 2000 and telling them, that's the guy. I saw on television winning the gold medal for Canada. So he, he he's in the book large and has played a huge role, you know, in, in my life. But one of the most amazing stories is of a 70 year old cancer uh, survivor. And I'd worked with this guy for a long time. He was a great marathon runner uh, and he decided he wanted to do the Ironman, but not just do the Ironman. He wanted to like win the Ironman. So we set a five-year goal. And on the fifth year in 2018, we're in Hawaii. And he set, he, he was, I think the only, only one, maybe two men ever have ever broke 12 hours as a 70 year old mm -hmm. at, at Kona. Uh, wow. He won, won the world record. Uh, set, I think he set the world record. There might be one other guy right in that time zone, but I mean, the next, you know, the next year, the winning time was an hour and 10 minutes slower than his, you know, 11:55. So right now we're back deep into it. He's racing in four weeks to qualify for next year's Hawaii. Uh, and wants to be the first man to ever break 13 hours as a 75 year old. So my coaching career doesn't end. I have all of these incredible athletes that, you know, stay motivated. Uh, the young girl that won the NCAAs a year ago was, you know, I met her when she was 14. And so it doesn't have to be the Olympics in every case. It could be a 75 year old man trying to win Kona or a 19 year old girl win the NCAA champs. 
I mean, coaching is one of those personal relationships where you, you don't have to have all the TV cameras on. You just have to have you and an athlete wanting to accomplish something magical. So how, how did you choose the people? Because you've got like maybe a dozen, 15 chapters in your book that I guess yeah. each one features one or two different people. So how, what, what was the criteria for sort of, um, were they were they stages of your life and then stories that fitted in there or did what you know did you go through yeah. and think actually there are certain people that, that just spring to mind when you talk about who you'd uh, I'm not a writer so I, it would have been much better for me to do this as an audio story than a than a write a book so that was one of the hardest parts number one um, so Canada because of the pandemic each time I would come back from announcing something I would have to go into the basement for two weeks in quarantine mm. by myself. So my wife would leave the car at the airport. I would drive home by myself, go in the basement door, and, the, and she would leave a pail of food at the top of the stairs every you know, 12 wow. hours and say, keep writing. So I had 36, uh, 14, 42 days that over a year that I had to, I couldn't leave, couldn't coach, couldn't whatever. So I wrote the entire book in those, in those blocks. Mm. Um, and and our, we had an editor <clears throat> who did not know triathlon I'd never met before. She didn't know sport. Uh, but she was wonderful at saying that story and that story really fit together. And, and the hardest, most painful thing are some phenomenal stories that didn't make the book that got cut because that's a great story, but it doesn't fit with one of those themes. And so that for me was the hardest part because there's some lovely people in memories, including Steve True, as an example, Steve True and I show up. Oh, mate, I'll have to make sure Steve's not listening to this then to know that he didn't. He, he got left on the cutting room floor. He, he did not make the book, but we showed up in 1995 in Cozumel, uh, sorry, in Cancun for the World Championships. And we were running a junior camp. And his job and my job was basically to sit at the elevator and make sure all these 18-year-old boys weren't leaving the building to go to the girls' building. <laughs> uh, and we were basically house dads. And anyway, we show up and we didn't had never met each other. And turns out he's an elite coach in Great Britain. I'm an elite coach in Canada. He has a company called Personal Best in the UK. I have a company called Personal Best in Canada. Wow. It was insane. We exchanged sweatshirts and we've been friends ever since. Uh, but our, our roommate for that, literally, that because the beds were of such a small notice, all these hotel rooms had three, four, five beds. Steve True and I have Simon Whitfield uh, as our, as our roommate. So, you know, then we fast forward five years later, Steve is, I'm pretty sure on the commentary at the Sydney in the, in the stadium, uh, doing stadium announcing and Simon Whitfield, our roommate wins the gold medal. And I can hear Steve's voice, you know, calling the athletes out and as you're coming through the transition zone. And so it was really magical, uh, to put all those things, but that story doesn't make it, you know, in, into the final book, but so it, it was um, people that inspired people who probably had journeys that people didn't necessarily think they were going to be slam dunk home run, you know, people and um, and just the, the beauty of life, just throwing curveballs at you and making the best of what you have at that time. Um, you know, there's there's stories of people with cancer and overcoming those obstacles and, and so forth. So um, it was it was a wonderful journey to write. I'm not a writer. And, you know, those of your listeners who are you know, proper in, in having written books, will look at it, I'm sure, and go, yeah, I could see some ways I would make that a better book. But people who have written it or read it already have told me that they literally can hear my voice. Like they can, as the story's happening, they can, they can hear me uh, saying it or doing it or being in it, um, which is wonderful because it means that that same passion I have commentating came through in the writing of the book. Did you find, you know, obviously some of those like the guy who, uh, the cancer survivor who who broke the 
Kona world record well, and, and yeah. won there. When you were writing that, did you feel some emotion there? Did you feel yourself getting choked up at all oh, with some of those? Huge, huge. I mean, yeah. every one of them, like, can you imagine? I'm writing it all by myself in some cases at 1130 at night in my basement because I can't leave for another 11 days. I didn't know if it was day or night, literally didn't know what the time of day was. I was just so engrossed. And eventually I would hear like my wife follow from up the top of the stairs going, look, it's 1230. Shut up, shut up the lights and go to bed. You got 10 more days of writing. So I was so engrossed in the process and it was all by myself. I mean, I don't know how most writers do. They go up to the cabin. Do they do write it? Whatever. Um, but it, I, I, what I did enjoy was going back and I, I studied all the old videos. I went back and looked at the Athens Olympics where, you know, Greg Bennett just about caught on, you know, and came forth and, and Simon was sitting back in that chase pack and nobody would help him. Mm. Uh, is that bunch Sven reader and, and Hamish and, and the guys, uh, Bevan and, and so forth, uh, took off. So it, it was great to go back and see those things. I had, I had done commentating on them, but you know, you, you can't remember what you, it's amazing mm. what you that, you know, 12 years ago, 16 years ago. Oh yeah. Olivia Marceau broke away on that bike, you know, et cetera. So it was great to go back and watch those. It, it refreshed my energy for the writing of it. Um, it might send some people to go back and check out some YouTube things, you know, to, to watch, but, um, you know, the real, the real desire of the book was, um, how insanely lucky I've been to, you know, have been in all of those places un prepared, but given an opportunity. And whether it was Les McDonald or Graham Fraser or, you know, the ITU through their time, the PTO now with some of the stuff that's happening, um, there's a thousand people who are equally or more qualified. And so I've always felt like when you got the call, you needed to bring your A game of energy, your A game of preparation. There's 20 other guys that are better than you and deserve to be there. You, you need to fight every day, just like the athletes have to fight. And, you know, the athletes have it tough. Like there's another bunch of kids want to knock Alex Yee off the podium and, and, you know, Jody Stimson's out there grinding, trying to make sure another British girl doesn't knock her off and, and so forth. So I have massive respect for what these athletes go through. And I think that the coaches and the commentators and the race directors need to bring that same a game to the sport, make the, make the events better, make the bigger prize money, make the television quality more. You know, I think we all have that responsibility because the, the ones who absolutely don't have a choice are the athletes. Someone's going to knock them off and the next bunch of Olympic kids are going to come through. So we should have that same responsibility and pressure to, to do that same A game that they have to do every week or they're not going to be still racing for their country. So, so it seems like, Barry, since 1991, you've just been at every seminal moment in triathlon. Right. You know what, so I, is, I, there, I, is, there any, is, is there anything you weren't at that you think, now? Oh, I wish I'd been at that one? No, the, the reality is uh, I've probably been to 25 to 27 Hawaii Ironmans, like the, you know, it's the big show at that distance. Uh, I was lucky enough to get, you know, called to come and do work when Challenge Daytona happened with that million dollar race. So I was there doing television. Uh, the PTO have given me a, a brilliant chance to come and be in these million dollar Collins Cup. I was in Collins Cup last year for that iconic thing. So I literally have zero, like, I mean, I've, I have been there. I, I was trying to think the other day and there may not honestly be another human, or if it is, it's probably a group that could all get in a cab at once who've been to every Olympic champion, every Olympic games, all world championships, the PTOs, major events, the, you know, the Ironman's biggest races. Obviously I wasn't there in, in 1978, you know, so if you ask me, you know, it would have been cool, but I've literally interviewed had supper with 
virtually all of, you know, seven of the 12 that raced in that event and, and had them up for banquets. I've had Sister Madonna up for, you know, banquets and spent time with Greg Welch and, and whatever. So the, you know, if the regret is zero, like it's been insane how lucky I've been. I, every day when I get called and asked to come and do uh, something else or something like your podcast, it's like, mm-hmm. you've been so blessed that you have a responsibility. And I, I literally make the young athletes. I literally quiz them in cabs. Hayden Wild, I took a cab with him for, in Edmonton to the airport and I quizzed the shit out of him on Kiwi. Ath- Do you know who Aaron Baker is? Do you know who Rick Wells is? Do you know, <laughs> who, you know, whatever John Hellemans is, yep. except in some cases, these guys don't know who these people are. And I no. go, you got to know. And the next time I see them, I say, who was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're lucky enough that with the exception of Les McDonald and a handful of others, the sport is still alive. They're still mm-hmm. here. The people who put on those events, you know, in Australia, in Great Britain, in France and so forth are still alive. And, and mm-hmm. the responsibility to make sure these 20 year old know exactly why they can race for, you know, a million dollar race entry or a, a prize purse because all these other people did the magic before them and they have a responsibility to take the sport to a higher level you know so the next bunch of kids can benefit yeah i absolutely agree um in fact it was a while back now i decided i was going to do a little podcast series as part a subset of this called the british triathlon legends and steve steve true actually was one of my first guests um awesome i i've had sarah on sarah springman and sarah coop um i've had chris jones on you probably know chris um, totally I've not had Bill Black on actually, and I've struggled. I got Spencer was a, Spencer agreed to do it, but he sort of dropped off the radar a bit. So I'm I'm trying to track Spencer down. But there's some I've had um, actually I I did have had Richard Hobson on and Robin Brew and um, I need to track hold of uh, get hold of Simon Lessing. I spoke to Jody Swallow last week. She's good. She's um, working in coaching now and and um, doing doing and really well. And, Glenn sorry? Cook and some of the, uh, Glenn Cook and some of those guys. I, I think his daughter's now racing. Uh, yeah, yeah. When I'm looking on the side, so. You know, every country has a responsibility minimally that they keep their own history going. Mm-hmm. And I happen to be lucky enough that I've been around the world and, you know, watch those great Aussies, you know. And if you take a look, there's probably about three or four people that I, I'm sad never got their day, um, you know, at things like the Olympic Games. You know, when you when you look back to a couple of the Aussies that um, Brad crashed, I think, on the day of the night before the Aussie uh, Olympic trials and never made that Australian team as great as he was. Um, you know, so there's there's a few of those people that never got that moment. And and it always saddens me because I know that how incredible that experience of being mm-hmm. at an Ironman champs or the Olympic Games or, you know, whatever the case may be. And and so it's great that we can keep those names alive. And hopefully in some cases, I mean, Rob Burrell just destroyed everyone in Nice uh, in the, in Ironman at the 60, he won the 65 category. I think it would have won the 60 category and been second or third in the 55 category. And he raced at the Sydney Olympics as a 41 or 42 year old guy. You know I mean? Well, and, some I mean, people, some people, um, don't realize that Kenny Glahar, I think at one point was leading the iron war, wasn't he? He was yeah. certainly in the top three for a long way. He was, he was in third place. Yeah. Yeah. And most people and don't he, realize who was 20 minutes behind because no, the, but he the was eyeballs um, were on the front. Yeah. But, but he's still, he's, he's continued that streak, hasn't he? For like 35 odd years, qualifying and racing. When I, when I got my chance to race in Kona as a legacy athlete back in 2017, in, in the 50 to 54 age group, there was Jürgen Zach, um, Richard Hobson, Ken Glar, 
and um, and a couple of other guys who'd been racing as elites who used to win Ironman races back when I used to open my copy of the US Triathlete magazine. Honestly, I felt like I was a kid in a sweet shop at 53. <laughs> well, and they come in with awesome passion. One of the great things about, you know, the ITU is that you see that in some of those, you know, 50 and 55, like McKilly Jones is consistently raced. Michelle Dillon has yes. gone to the world yep. numerous times. Yep. I, I just saw, um, uh, what's Michelle's husband's name? He oh, Stuart, Stuart Hayes. Yeah. Hayes, you know, Olympian. Um, I think he just did a 70.3 in the last couple of weeks. Mm. So it's wonderful to see these athletes, you know, in some cases having kids and then coming back, finding some time in their fifties or sixties, you know, mm. because they still love to ride a bike and they still, you know, they can still swim and maybe they're not running as fast as they used to 25 years ago, but, um, you know, they're important parts of the history of our sport. Mm. Well, Barry, you're definitely part of that history. You're p- p- past and present and hopefully still the future. So I uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing those stories with us. I, I encourage listeners to get a copy of Barry's book. I'll be getting a copy myself. Hopefully I'll better get it autographed, Barry, when we're in uh, Listen, I will do that with honor. I, I know that Steve True got a copy a couple of weeks ago. He, he sent me a note and um, I think it's on Amazon through the UK and Mm. You're a nobody writer, you know, bookstores really don't give a, a, a whatever flying fadu about your book. So right now it's, it's just, you know, people either getting it through Amazon or we mail it to them or I run into them, whatever the case may be. But um, it's been a fun, fun opening up doors of remembering back. And for some people, I think, you know, the emails they've sent mm. me that it's brought them joy of remembering things that they hadn't thought about for a while and went and took a look at an old YouTube shot of, Athens or whatever the case may be over those years. So uh, keep doing the magic you're doing. Um, it's important that we keep the history going. Our, we, uh, the sport is in a fantastic place. I mean, even with pandemic, I think it's in a spectacular mm. place. When you look at Super League, when you look at the ITU stuff that's happening, when you look at all the Ironman and Challenge and, you know, and and now that the PTO is really, you know, some point obviously you'll talk to sam and some of the others right oh, i've had no i had sam on i had someone before actually i yeah, uh, I, remember be, I remember being with him in kona and he said to me i've got a new job starting next week i'm going to be ceo of uh pto um it's a bit of a risk but we'll see how it goes and then here, here uh, we he's, are. Done a, he's done job. a brilliant job yeah just became a dad in the last uh last 10 days and mm-hmm. um, i'm heading over to to the Collins cup in uh, 24 hours, you know, to watch the the next development. So it, it's great. But I, I think that there's something for everyone now, short, long, middle, more t- prize money, more television. And, mm-hmm. you know, you find what, what you have time for at that phase in your life, whether it's short stuff for now, and then the kids get out and I got time for longer or whatever, but I'm excited to still contribute as long as I have something to give. Well, Maybe we'll have to get you back on uh, another show. Maybe for the bits that didn't uh, make the book, we'll do a whole episode about that. There are some important ones. So it's Chasing Greatness, Amazon, and uh, send me an email. I'd love to hear after people read it if they actually thought it was worth the 12 minutes and $12 or whatever. (laughs) Barry Shepley, you are a legend. Thank you for being on the show. Fun, fun. Thank you so much. It It was fantastic. Thank you again to Barry for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. And please make special effort to look at some of those videos and the archives that Barry talked about because they are fabulous viewing. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Also, don't forget to look out for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free 
mobility program. I'd like it to be something you really focus on for this winter's training. That's all for this week. Have a great weekend and I will see you on the next episode.